God's rainbow is the title of this morning's message from Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. God's rainbow. Let's look there together. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God's rainbow. Not man's. God's rainbow. God's covenant sign to mankind. Let's talk about these verses and then expound upon them with three points. Verse 8, God spoke to Noah and his sons. This is still in the era of God speaking to man, God revealing himself directly to man. You must understand that that is not the norm. In all ages, at all times, God does not speak directly with man. That's the exception. God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, quote, this is God literally speaking, quote, this is not... Noah feeling like God's telling him something. This is God speaking audibly to Noah. And then the pen was put to page to record it. God said, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, you've heard that before. You've read that before. You're familiar with the story more than likely. Some of you are named after Noah. I trust you're familiar with the story. And the covenant. But stop for a moment and consider the trauma that they experienced. Try to put yourself in Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their wives' shoes for a moment. The entire world was wiped out. Everyone they knew, gone. Everything they knew, The terrain, the trees, the plants, the animals, save those on the ark, but those that roamed the earth, 
those you could look out upon in great herds, gone. Imagine the Midwest, if you will. Anyone visit the Midwest in the winter? It's a great mud pit. It's beautiful in the summer. It's green, it's lush, it's beautiful. But it's a great mud pit. Here on the coast, we have these beautiful things called pine trees. They stay green. And because it doesn't get so cold, even our grass stays green. In the Midwest, it all turns brown. It all turns to mud. Now, they do have a lot of beautiful snow. But I can imagine a bit what it would be like in a post-Diluvian world, a post-flood world. Everything wiped out. In fact, years ago, while I was in the Marine Corps, there was this great flood. Now, not a global flood, but it was a great flood. Much of St. Louis was underwater. I flew into St. Louis, returning home on leave to visit my family. As I flew in, the arch there in St. Louis, the famous arch, was not entirely underwater, mind you, but at each end, it was underwater, which was a sight to behold because much of my adult life, I've flown into St. Louis to see my wife's family. It was a sight to behold the Mississippi River well out of its banks. It was a sight to behold as we drove out of St. Louis back to Keokuk, Iowa, where my wife is from. It was kind of like being there at the divided waters of Moses, not Noah, where the Red Sea was a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left. The road we were on had water for miles on both sides. And there were people in John boats and other boats out there tooling along next to us as we're driving down the highway through the Midwest. Everything was mud. And so I'm a bit familiar with what it would be like. I'm a bit familiar with how devastating a flood is. Now, not in any way a global flood. And no one there in Iowa or Missouri or Illinois, no one there was bound up in an ark with their family for months on end. Now, you might have felt like that this last year. And maybe you get just a touch of it, although you could still go outside and your house has not been rocking and your house is not filled with two of every creature and everything that comes forth from them. You can only imagine the terror and the discomfort of being on that ark in the midst of a global flood month after month after month until finally dry earth is found until finally the Lord sends back the flood waters and the ark comes to rest until finally they open the ark and come forth and make sacrifice to worship the Lord. Blood sacrifice. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It is that experience that these words are spoken into. What a precious promise after a global flood and a long, long time with your family on that ark. The Lord says, as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you 
and with every living creature that is with you, literally with you. They were on the ark. Now they're getting off. The birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Think about that. Every beast on the earth currently got off that ark. They've all descended from that ark. Now there's variation within species, but they all came off that ark. Every man, woman, and child can point back to that ark. And their great-grandparents, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their wives. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. That's not a flippant statement. That is a precious promise for Noah and his sons and their wives. They have learned that God is a just judge and he is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7.11 They have learned it thoroughly. They have learned the beginning of wisdom, the fear of God. And they have learned it thoroughly. And they come off that ark no doubt a bit traumatized by that experience as often the fear of God is described with trembling, with falling spontaneously prostrate before the Lord. People are just literally undone and they cry out, I am undone in the presence of a holy God. They come off the ark in the fear of God And God in His mercy and grace and loving kindness says to them, Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God says that amazingly with full omniscient knowledge of you and all your sin and mine too, along with the rest of mankind. He says that, with the full knowledge that our generation, when I say our, I mean mine, since 1980, has murdered 1.6 billion babies in the world's most horrific genocide. He said it with full knowledge of all that would yet to come, all the evil that would yet flow from mankind's hearts bound in iniquity. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, And God said, This is a sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. It's not just for man, it's for the creature. It's a covenant with man and creature. It's a unilateral covenant with mankind and critters too. This is a sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud. It's God's rainbow, saints. It's God's rainbow. It's God's cosmos. It's God's rainbow. And he set it in the cloud. And it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Every time you see the rainbow, you see the sign of God's unilateral covenant, His universal covenant, His glorious covenant of mercy and grace for sinful mankind that He will not 
wipe us out from the face of the earth with a flood ever again. It shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Every time you see it, you should celebrate. Every time you should see it, you should sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Roll down the windows. Sing it for all to hear. Draw your children's attention to it. To the point where they say, yeah, yeah, we know dad. And you rebuke them once again for saying that. Yeah, I know you know. You're going to know it again and again and again as long as you're my presence. Because like Noah before me, I'm going to labor to get my family on the ark. Because off of that ark, outside of that ark, eventually the rainbow will fade. And the judgment of God will come. Not through flood, that promise is set. But the judgment of God will come. So point to the rainbow. Celebrate the rainbow. Explain again what the rainbow means. Get excited about the rainbow. God's rainbow that he set in the clouds. And don't let any thief steal God's rainbow that he set in the cloud to be a sign of his mercy on sinners. And don't forget, there is no mercy without sinner. There's no gracious God without sinner. The two are intimately connected. Sinners need mercy. Sinners need grace. The sign in the cloud is a sign of God's mercy and grace upon sinners. Sinners that deserve his judgment now. Every generation since Noah has deserved a global flood. But the Lord has restrained his wrath for the day of wrath that is yet to come. I set my rainbow in the cloud. It shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. There are those that deny a global flood. Noah's flood was like, you know, the mighty Mississippi. It was just a localized experience. It was very traumatic for Noah and family, mind you. So we understand why he wrote it that way. But it was just localized. No, it wasn't. I'm not going to go back to chapter 6, 7, and 8 to unpack it all. But go back if you need to. The Lord expressly labored to make it very, very, very clear and undeniable that it was a global flood in which everything on the planet that had the breath of life perished in which every high mountain was covered. And his covenant just seals that truth. And that his covenant isn't for those who live in the Mississippi Valley. (laughs) Those who suffered this local traumatic event of a flood. No, it's for the earth. And all the residents thereof, man and animal. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. Who brings clouds? God. God is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over the wind and the rain and the snow and the sun. When I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. Verse 15. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Never again. Don't take off Noah's shoes yet. 
That's really good news. You don't want to go back on that ark. You don't want your grandchildren that you now have hope of, right? Your grandchildren that are now going to repopulate the earth, be fruitful, multiply. Remember last week? You don't want your grandchildren to be wiped out or your grandchildren, grandchildren's grandchildren to be wiped out. This is incredible news. You understand that God is a just judge. You side with God against sinful humanity. You're not resenting the global flood. You're not resenting that you are on that ark. But you're a bit traumatized by it if you've got Noah's shoes on. You have learned the fear of God. And you will not soon forget. But God teaches them of His mercy. That they would not fear and flee Him, but fear and flee to Him. And His kindness. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So we're talking about all the earth and all the flesh thereof in the covenant, which just, again, seals up the truth of the global flood that chapter 6, 7, and 8 speak to. Verse 16, the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. This kind of repetition is deliberate. Verse 17, And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the sign of the covenant. It's God's rainbow. And it's ours. The followers of God. The people of God. He has given it to us as a sign of His mercy and grace. To remind us of the vehicle of His mercy and grace, that ark. To remind us that Noah was saved by Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, faith. Faith. And that we must be saved by faith. We must enter the ark, not a wood ship, but Jesus Christ. By faith alone. Not our works, but His works. To tell us, die, it is finished. He finished the work. He built the ark of salvation. Noah built the ark. The critters came upon it and were rescued thereby. Jesus has built the ark. We're the critters that come upon it by grace alone, through faith alone. And Christ finished work alone. That is our introduction. First point. The covenant of the rainbow, and we'll just be really expounding on that and unpacking it. The covenant of the rainbow is our first point. The Bible exposition commentary says this section is what theologians call the Noahic covenant. Noah, Noahic. Noahic covenant. That's what it is. It's the Noahic covenant. Though God spoke especially to Noah and his sons, this covenant includes all of Noah's descendants and all generations to come. The covenant does not stop there, however, for it also includes every living creature and all living creatures of every kind. Humans, birds, beasts, and wild animals are encompassed in this wonderful covenant. In this covenant, God promised unconditionally that he would never send another flood to destroy all life on the earth. As though to make it emphatic, three times over he said, never again. Never again. Never again. He's not just being emphatic. He's being gracious. He's calming their duly fearful souls. 
He didn't lay down any conditions that men and women had to obey. He simply stated the fact that there would be no more universal floods. From that day on, Noah and his family could enjoy life and not worry every time the rain began to fall. Noah and his family needed this comfort. From that day on, Noah and his family could enjoy life and not worry every time it began to rain. What is the Noahic covenant? Here's my answer. The Noahic covenant has often been correctly defined as unconditional and unilateral, meaning it's not based upon any condition, anything we would do. Unilateral, meaning it's universal, it's for all mankind, all animals, all the earth. It's a promise made by God to the human race never again to destroy the world with a flood despite mankind's response or lack thereof. A promise made not just to mankind, but to every living creature on the earth. The nature of the Noahic covenant being unilateral means the responsibility to fulfill the covenant lies entirely upon God rather than mankind. God sealed his covenant with a promise, the sign of the rainbow. You'll recall that Genesis chapter 6 recorded God's declaration that he was going to destroy the earth and all living creatures which had the breath of life on the face of the earth with a global flood that would cover the highest mountains. In that time, God saw that men were evil. In fact, man was so evil that, quote, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5. Much like mankind today, God saved Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, their wives, and two of each of the species of animals that walked the earth at that time. After the flood, God made this Noahic covenant with Noah, his family, and all mankind that would follow in all the earth in which he promised never to again destroy the world with a flood. As a sign of his covenant promise, God set his rainbow in the clouds. As Genesis 9, 12 And 13, record. That's the covenant of the rainbow. How about the nature of the rainbow? This point would be a little longer, a little more fun, and a little more painful. The nature of the rainbow. There are many rainbow mythologies from around the world. It's interesting. You can do your own study. This is a truncated study. I didn't want to spend an entire hour on it. You could spend longer than that. There are many rainbow mythologies from around the world. In Norse religion, a burning rainbow bridge connects Midgard, Earth, with Asgard, home of the gods. The notion that the rainbow bridge to heaven is attainable by only the good or virtuous, such as warriors and royalty, is the theme repeated often in world myths. By the way, Norse religion is on the rise. I am meeting people who really believe in the Norse gods. They really, truly do. Because... In the vacuum of Christianity, when we cower instead of going, therefore, to make disciples, when we make peace with people perishing in sin rather than warring against hell and sin with the gospel of Jesus Christ, people are going to believe something. They're going to gravitate toward some idol or idols. And so I'm meeting people that worship Thor. Truly, they actually believe in Thor, the god of thunder. And they're hoping to catch a ride into Asgard. In the ancient beliefs of Japan, rainbows were the bridges that human ancestors took to descend to the planet. So that's how they got here. 
That's an origin story for Japan. Rainbows were the bridge that mankind came to earth upon. In the Navajo tradition, the rainbow is the path of the Holy Spirits and is frequently depicted in sacred sand paintings. The Cherokee believe the rainbow forms the hem of the sun's coat. In Greek mythology, Iris is the personification of the rainbow and a messenger linking the gods to humanity. Iris is frequently mentioned as a divine messenger in the Iliad. Like many Greek gods, Iris is continually being redefined. The rainbow eventually became solely a mode of transportation for Iris, who proves to be as elusive and unpredictable as the rainbow itself. The rainbow is depicted as an archer's bow in Hindu mythology. Indra, the god of thunder and war, uses the rainbow to shoot arrows of lightning. For Buddhists, the rainbow is the highest state achievable before attaining nirvana, where individual desire and consciousness are extinguished. So really, the goal of Buddhism is spiritual suicide. Just lights out. That's it. And the rainbow is the last stop before that. That's not quite as comforting as God's rainbow and the covenant of His mercy that it represents. In Ireland, a common legend asserts that a pot of gold is to be found at the end of the rainbow. I told you it'd be fun. For the person lucky enough to find it, this treasure is, however, guarded by a leprechaun. So watch out. Under what Wikipedia calls Abrahamic mythology, it says, according to Genesis, after Noah saved the animals from the great flood, a rainbow appeared as the flood that had killed all other living beings. The rainbow came to symbolize God's promise that he would never send another flood to destroy all the earth and that never again would all living things be killed in the waters of a flood. Wikipedia nailed it, except that they put mythology in front of it. In all of the myths of the world, Noah's account is the true account. It is the accurate account. It is the real account. It's God's rainbow. In the modern world, here's where it gets painful, the homosexual movement has adopted the rainbow as the sign of the beauty and diversity of their perversion. Everywhere you go, you see the rainbow being used as a symbol of sexual perversion and Romans 1 rebellion against God, our creator. Earlier I told you when you see the rainbow in the sky to tell your kids, look kids, that is a symbol of God's mercy upon sinners. Let me go a step further. Everywhere you see the rainbow, you tell your kids, look kids, that is a symbol of God's mercy and grace upon sinners who repent of their sin, including their sexual sin, and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And if your kids aren't there, say, look, dear. Say, look, Bill. Say, look, Susie. That's a symbol of God's mercy and grace upon sinners who repent of all their sin, including their sexual sin, and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. They'll be saved. Just like Noah was saved on the ark, sinners today can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. He is their ark from this sinful world safely to the world to come in which only righteousness dwells. That's our message, saints. That's the message of the rainbow. And our homosexual neighbors have done us the favor of putting the rainbow everywhere. It's everywhere. You can't go anywhere today without seeing people emblazoned with the rainbow. It's on their cars, it's on their business windows, it's on their t-shirts, it's on their hats, it's on their earrings, it's on their eyebrows. It's everywhere. 
They mean it to be a symbol of their perversion or their support of those that have embraced perversion. We know it's God's rainbow. And we have a responsibility to declare it as such, to reclaim it as such, to take back what they have stolen. It's God's rainbow. I'm so happy to see you celebrating the rainbow today, my friend. It's a celebration of God's mercy and grace to sinners like yourself and like me. Oh, that we would turn to Christ and find forgiveness and mercy in the hour of His mercy. That hour will end and His judgment will come. Not through flood, the rainbow guarantees that, but through fire, my friend, eternal fire, a lake of fire in which the worm does not die and the flame is not quenched. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He is the ark of salvation, not from a flood, but from fire. Flee, my rainbow-adorned friend, to Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. That's the message of the rainbow, that we must faithfully, lovingly, boldly proclaim in this world. Romans 1, 18-32 talks about a culture given over to rebellion against God and the results thereof. This is our rainbow culture. They have stolen the rainbow from God. It's God's rainbow. They've attempted to steal the rainbow from the sky as a celebration of their rebellion against their creator and their sexual perversion. And Romans 1 really pulls the curtain back on our American, Western, and global culture. It's a global uprising, saints, a global uprising against the one true God and His Son, the Christ, the Anointed One. Psalm 2 speaks of it, but Romans 1, 18-32 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He will not bring His wrath through flood, but He will bring His wrath through fire. His wrath is coming for all those who in their ungodliness and unrighteousness suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. All men know God and women too. All mankind knows God. They know Him. They know the Creator. He's made Himself known in creation. God's Word says it. Don't let them tell you otherwise. You are an a-atheist. An a-atheist? Yeah, you don't believe in atheists because God's word doesn't allow you to believe in atheists. There are no true atheists. There are only men and women who suppress the truth of God. They know. How do you know that? Because let God be true and every man a liar. I also know it personally because I once was an atheist. Now I'm an a-atheist. I don't believe in atheists. But even when I was an atheist, I wrote my own atheist manifesto even. I was a true atheist. I wrote it out. I gave it to my parents. I said, I'm done with this whole God thing. I'm done with church. I'm going my own way. I'm doing my own thing. Just after I finished confirmation class. And that's how I lived. Until God's amazing grace broke in and saved my wicked soul. But even while I was living as an atheist, after writing my atheist manifesto, when things would get dark, when things would get dangerous, when things would get depressing when I would feel particularly evil, because I was, I would hedge my bet. And I would try to be a little nicer. Or maybe even, as an atheist, oddly enough, show up at church. You know? I felt better afterwards. 
I hedged my bet. I had an idea that, you know, if there's a God, wait, I'm an atheist. What do you mean if there's a God? But if there's a God, I want to be 51% good. You know, cosmic scales. As long as I'm 51% good, I'm good. Only the problem is you must be 100% good. And not just good, righteous, holy. And the other problem is we're 0% good. Righteous and holy. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But even as an atheist, I wasn't an atheist, truly. I was suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. As the Word of God says. Verse 19, Romans 1. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. God has shown it to them. Don't call God a liar. Don't join the atheist and say, okay, I I get it. No, you tell the atheist the truth. You know God. You're stubbornly suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness to justify your sin, to become a God unto yourself. And again, I know that on a personal level. What was the practical result of declaring myself an atheist? I became God. I defined good and evil. I served me. I lived for my own glory, to my own destruction. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world is invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. They have no excuse. All men know God. He has revealed himself. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. I don't have time to fully unpack that. I need to preach a standalone sermon on that. But believe God. Suffice it to say that. Believe God, that they know God. But to justify their sin and to suppress their own conscience, they suppress the truth of God that they know. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they knew God, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. They worshiped the creature rather than the Creator. Verse 24, therefore God... also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts. You cannot reject your creator without quickly descending into moral insanity. God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. What is homosexuality? What is lesbian behavior? What is transgender behavior? Saints use biblical terms. Vile passion. That's not harsh. That's not mean. That's the reality they need to understand because we love them. They need to understand love isn't love. Lust, homosexual lust, lesbian lust is vile passion. It's not love. It's not beautiful. It's not like a rainbow. It's vile passion. Thus says the word of God. And it's unloving to say anything else. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Their minds need to be renewed. They need to feel the weight of their sin and repent. And it's hateful to them to suppress the truth, to withhold the truth, and to act like love is love. That's hateful to them. It's vile passion. It's not my opinion. 
That's reality. God defines reality. Not you, not me, not the homosexual movement. It's God's rainbow. It's God's reality. It's God who defines truth and error, sin and righteousness, and terms. Love is not love. Lust is not love. Vile passion is not love. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Lesbianism is against nature. It's not natural. What do you mean, pastor? Well, God said it. It's quite clear. It's against nature. It's not natural. But you know what? There's a lot of talk today about science deniers. The homosexual movement are science deniers. It's not natural, folks. You don't create life in this relationship. It's not natural. It's not compatible physiologically. It wasn't designed that way by the designer who is God. It's not natural. This is reality. We can't join mankind in their rebellion against reality. It's not just God. It's reality. And remember years ago, some of you do, some of you are old enough, to remember when reality was biblical in America. And in America, no one would admit to homosexual lust, to homosexual vile passion. They wouldn't admit to that because it was shameful and it wouldn't be tolerated. But then the toleration movement came along. And I'm all for toleration in the sense of not abusing or being mean to homosexuals or lesbians or any other person engaging themselves in vile passion of any sort of kind. Um, Yet we must speak truth to them in love. Toleration became then celebration. You need to celebrate it. And then it became legislation. You will celebrate it (laughs) or you'll be canceled. You'll lose your job and soon you may well lose citizenship, it seems. Did you hear they just announced... I believe in the House of Representatives last week that all the representatives are supposed to forego gender-laden language and now use gender-neutral language. There is no he, she, no mom, dad, mother, father in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. That's been outlawed. They're now supposed to use gender-neutral terms. That's America's rebellion against God. By the way, that's the Democratic Party's rebellion against God. They haven't even waited for Joe Biden to get to the White House, and I'm still praying he never does. But they haven't even waited until they're in the seat of power in the executive branch, the legislative branch. And it would seem in the judicial branch, somehow, in the Supreme Court, even, They're already outlawing gender. So it it went from a sexual revolution that was heterosexual to a sexual revolution that was homosexual, uh, which of course required a genocide, the genocide of the unborn, to now legislating homosexuality, legislating vile passion, to where if you speak against it, not even speak against the sex act, but actually speak as if there are actual genders that God designed, like male and female. Genesis 1, 16 and 17. 
let us make man in our image, male and female. He created them. Remember how I told you this is the book of foundations? If you reject the book of foundations, you reject sanity and you descend into madness. And no culture can long live in this state of madness. You must understand, no nation can survive the madness we're now embracing. You are watching the demise of a nation. And there will either be national repentance as Christians rise up as the new rebels, right? The homosexual movement was once the rebellious movement. Now Christians are the rebels in the current society. We rise up and preach truth, speak truth with love for the glory of God, for the love of God and the love of neighbor, that they not perish in their sins. The children being raised today are being told they're not boys and girls, They're not just being told they're free to engage in whatever sexuality they like. They're being told they're not even boys and girls. They've lost their identity as male and female. It's being outlawed even. If some boy should think he's a boy, he'll be punished. We we were mocked by young high school students outside of a Planned Parenthood a few years ago. I can only imagine how it is now. This is a few years back. This group of high school students came, boys and girls although they wouldn't admit it. They would not admit it. They mocked and laughed and scoffed. Not that we were standing against abortion. They were several steps back from that. That we actually said there is male and female. There's no gender, the young man said. And I said, you're really going to stand here with these girls and say that? You don't appear to be a homosexual. You appear to be heterosexual. Do you really want to say you're not a man? You're not a boy? What, what is this? You've lost your mind. But he would not regain it. He would not. Standing in the sunshine on the sidewalk outside of the Martin Luther King Planned Parenthood, he would not regain his mind. He would not claim his manhood or boyhood even. That's what this culture is doing to kids. They're being spoon-fed insanity. Having rejected their creator, they have descended into madness. For this reason, God gave them up, verse 26 says, to vile passions. For even the women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful. Shameful! It is shameful! Use the word. It's shameful. We don't smile at it. It's shameful. We don't act like it's not shameful. We cannot ask our homosexual neighbors and even friends. Yes, you want to befriend them in the name of Christ that they might be saved. But you can't befriend them in the sense that you celebrate the sin. If you're going to have a friendship with them, there are going to be certain difficult parameters of that. Oh, me and my partner, me and my wife, me and my husband that's of the same gender, you can't honor that. It's going to be difficult to be friends with them. You want to love them. And so you can't give up the biblical truth that probably will make it to where they don't want to be your friends. But don't, for the sake of a friendship, compromise the truth. Don't, for the sake of a good work relationship, compromise The truth. And in that even, it's going to be difficult in the world you live in. You may have to consider an exit strategy for your job. You may have to consider your next job. You may have to consider, you know what, you're going to start your own business because you can't join them. You cannot use 
unbiblical terms, or worse, insane terms. You can't call men women. That is rebellion against your God. You cannot keep your job or your friendship by calling a man a woman or a woman a man. You can't. We can't give up this ground. We can't give up the rainbow, saints. It's God's rainbow. We can't give up gender. It's God's gender. Male and female, He created them. These are battle lines. And they're difficult ones. I know what I'm saying. I don't want you to pay the price you'll pay relationally and professionally. I don't want you to pay the greater price you'll pay by the Lord having joined the world in their rebellion against Him, having adopted their rebellious terminology, having rejected gender with them to keep a job, find another job. Find a way to navigate in that job or find another job. But you cannot join them in their rebellion against God and think God's going to understand. No. No, you're joining them in their rebellion out of self-love. We can't do that. It's hating them as they perish in their sins. If they know you're a Christian and you call a man a woman, you use female terms for him, you are helping damn their soul. Do you understand that? You're hating God and them. We cannot do it. Now, there are pastors standing up in pulpits today and they can't capitulate fast enough. They can't run from the rainbow fast enough. They can't give away God's rainbow and God's terminology and God's gender and sexuality fast enough. They're bowing before the altar of really self. They love themselves and they want peace where they can have no peace. Portland's churches are certainly full of those pastors and those professing Christians We're capitulating rampantly. The nearest church, I've said it before, I will keep saying it because it needs to be said. Beaverton Foursquare Church, huge church. The pastor baptizes homosexual couples, married couples, miraged couples. They're not married. It's a mirage. It's a sinful mirage. It's a suppression of truth and unrighteousness. He baptizes them as believers in Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As Christians, unrepentant, what a blasphemy. It is so blasphemous. It is so evil. You know, we want to point at the Democratic Party and what they're doing. Point at Beaverton Foursquare Church and every church like it. And they are multitude. They are legion. We're bowing to the world instead of to God. And the world desperately needs us to bow to God and go out into the world to rescue them with the truth. And truth starts with terminology, actual words with actual meanings. It's God's rainbow. It's God's male. It's God's female. It's God's definition of good and evil. It's God's definition of sexual morality and immorality, perversion, vile, passion, love. We've given that up even. God defines love. Lust is not love. Whether it's fornicating lust, adulterous lust, or homosexual lust, that's not love. It's hatred. I told you it'd be painful. The nature of the rainbow. It's God's rainbow. We can't 
let the world steal it. It's God's world. It's God's reality. It's God's truth. He defines it all. We can't let the world redefine it and steal it all. Romans 1.28, And even as they did not like to retain God and their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. Our neighbors, not just those actively living a homosexual or lesbian or transgender, whatever they want to call it, vile passion life, but our neighbors are all celebrating it. They've all been given over to a debased mind. When I go out into our community and preach Jesus, just Jesus, specifically even when I preach just John 3.16, I'm preaching the pure love of God in Christ and salvation to sinners through faith in Jesus. Those who are committed to a debased mind, vile passions, homosexuality, lesbianism, they come out of the woodwork because they know the God I serve and they hate him and they're in rebellion against him. And so no matter what truth of God I'm preaching, even the love of God, they can't abide it. And they come out of the woodwork and they start often committing vile passions right in front of me to mock God and his word. And then to love them, I always take the opportunity to say, my neighbors have come out here to express their vile passions, their abominable lusts. And so I want to take the opportunity to love them and speak to that from the word of God. And then I open up one of many passages that speak to that sin and define that sin from scripture and call them to repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ and offer them the good news of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 11, which closes with such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of our God. That's the hope for all of them. They can be saved, but we need to offer them that hope. We've gone so far now, we've got a whole party, the Communist Democratic Party, who are also the party of child mutilation. The party that wants to take your children from you, pervert them, and then mutilate their bodies and give them back, no, keep them forever and drag them down to hell with them. And we have Christians that just voted that party into power. Professing Christians, I'll say. I have zero confidence in the salvation of anyone who just voted the communist, perverted, democratic party into power. It's evil. All across Portland today, there are professing Christians who raise their hands, claiming to love Jesus, worshiping Jesus, who voted that evil into power. Those who unleash abortion doctors on mothers and their unborn babies up through the ninth month and beyond. Those who are now openly justifying the murder of born babies. Those who are unleashing every perversion and legislating every perversion and binding us up, criminalizing the word of God. And professed Christians voted them into power. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them up 
to a debased mind, to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of all evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who know the righteous, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Don't miss that they are haters of God. These are all symptoms of being a hater of God. I'd like to talk to you about the history of the homosexual movement's hijacking of the rainbow. It began in 1978 when an artist designer was commissioned to create a flag and now You see it everywhere. You see it on churches. I was nearly arrested in Hillsboro preaching the gospel at the parade where many years I preached freely, unharassed, uninterrupted. Our culture is changing. The street was full of, I don't know, a thousand people, chalk, guitars, dancing, walking. But as I walked along the parade route, preaching the gospel and got in front of the church with the rainbow flag celebrating homosexuality. And I began to preach the grace of God, the mercy of God to all sinners, including homosexuals. The police went by roughly a thousand people straight to me to say, you can't be in the street. You're obstructing the parade route. And I looked at the police officer and I said, ma'am, You just went by in your little golf cart about a thousand people who are in the street to come to me. You are clearly suppressing my speech. You don't like the message. That's an infraction on the First Amendment, ma'am, which she, of course, denied and said, are you going to stop preaching or am I going to arrest you? That's where we're going. And there will be arrests. And I'm willing to be arrested to preach the truth that will rescue sinners from eternity and hell, that they might flee from the wrath to come, not water, fire, not to a wooden ship, but to Jesus Christ and his wooden cross and those nails and his shed blood and his tetelestai. It is finished. The only hope of salvation Genesis is not an old, dry, dusty book. It's certainly not a fictional book. It's historic and it's vital. Our nation, the Western world beyond it and the globe beyond that, it's perishing. Having rejected its creator, we've become the culture of Romans 1. We are embracing the hatred of God and our manifestation of our hatred of God is in a multitude of sins, but chief amongst them are these sexual sins. And we're being given over to it. Our children are being given over to it. And soon you'll be enslaved to it in one way or another unless we stand up and preach as if eternal souls depended upon it, as if the fabric of society depended upon it. As if the Western world and the United States of America 
and all of humanity depended upon the truth of God. Faith coming by hearing, hearing the word of God. The scriptures making them wise into salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The scriptures, by the way, are the foundation of the Western world. They are the foundation. The biblical worldview is the foundation of the fabric of our society, what holds us together. And it's disintegrating. It's all but gone. We're on the precipice of losing it entirely. We must stand up in the day of battle and fight a good fight for the glory of God, for the love of God, and for the love of perishing sinners.